The following sermon was delivered on February 14, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial assistant Zachary Groff delivered this message entitled A Church on the Brink on Revelation 2, 12-17. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. The last couple of times that I've been here filling the pulpit, we've been going through these seven letters to the churches in Revelation. And so the first church that we saw was Ephesus. And the problem in Ephesus was that they had done what? Their love had grown cold. They had abandoned their first love. And the result of that is Christ threatened to remove the lampstand of the gospel ministry from them. And today, to the best of my knowledge, there is no church in Ephesus. It's completely gone. In fact, there's no real town on the ancient ruins of Ephesus, as far as I know. But the main proposition that I presented to you when we looked at that letter was that Christ calls you, his people, to renew love for God before a watching world in need of the gospel. And then why did I say that? Well, because just as all these letters are, that first letter to Ephesus was, in fact, a letter to you as well. Not merely received as if it was written to you, but it was, in fact, intended for your eyes in addition to those of the saints in Ephesus. And then the second church we saw was Smyrna, faithful Smyrna. And even the eyes of Christ could find no fault with her. But they had a problem too. You see, they were persecuted. And in fact, the persecution that was to come was to be greater than that which they had faced already. And so Christ came to them with a message of hope to edify them and strengthen them. And what he said to them essentially is this, when proven through trial, the church's faith in Christ is the Christian's living faith resulting in spiritual triumph. And now this week, we come to Pergamum, otherwise known as Pergamus. Pergamum is just the direct object version of the name, but we'll use Pergamum because that's what's in our Bible and it's totally appropriate. In Pergamum, they had faced persecution in the past and they had come out of it. The persecution more or less had come to a close, but now they face a new problem a new problem. They're a church on the brink. Pergamum was a church on the brink. They were walking on a balance beam, as it were. Children, have you walked on a balance beam any time recently? No, probably not. I don't have one at our house. A lot of the playgrounds are, well, they're not shut down anymore, but they don't even have balance beams anymore because they're kind of dangerous. You'll hurt yourself on them. Balance beams and those merry-go-round things of it's on the way of the dodo in modern playgrounds. But surely you've, you've walked on a ledge of some kind to see if you can stay straight. And the propensity is to fall to the right or to the left. Well, imagine Pergamum as a church walking on a balance beam. And on one side, you have a two-inch drop onto like cushy pillows or something. But on the other side, you have a 30-foot fall into hot lava. You see the danger here. This church was on the brink of disaster, and Christ is calling them off of the brink, off of that ledge, to cast themselves where it is safe and comfortable with him, and not to fall to their doom in what I called hot lava. There are a couple reasons for this, and this image that I put before you. One is Christ does approve much about this church in Pergamum, but he also blames them 
He says that there, there, there has been bad doctrine mixed in with that which is good, and that's what's putting them in danger. But also, their very setting is a setting of danger. It's a place where persecution had broken out before, this city, this Pergamum. But it's also a city that had great wealth and riches. It was a commercial hub in Asia Minor. It was a city with great political power. It's where the king of the region would set up his throne, and he ruled over the province there from Pergamum. And it was a city of great learning and refined learning. It had a library, which um, one commentator I read said the library was estimated to have 200,000 volumes. Now, surely that sounds like a lot to us. Can you imagine how much it sounded like to first century uh, Jews or Christians? 200,000 volumes was amazing. The city had riches, royalty, and refined learning. But what does Christ say in 13? I know where you dwell, dot, 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 where Satan dwells. The enemy was right there right at the gates, as it were. And they confronted him each and every day. Now, some may think that this is a reference to all the pagan temples that were in Pergamum. Their most beautiful buildings were, in fact, temples to Athena and and Zeus. There was a massive temple to Zeus. There was also probably uh, the, the imperial cult getting established there as well to worship the god emperor Caesar. But whether... This is referencing the physical edifices or a deeper spiritual reality the truth holds. The church was in danger of what? Of compromise, of spiritual adultery. And that gets unpacked for us in our passage. And that's what really we're going to be looking at tonight. But what I I seek to show you under three headings is this truth. By the truth of his word, Christ opposes falsehood and rewards those who hold fast to him through faith. By the truth of his word, Christ opposes falsehood and rewards those who hold fast to him through faith. And in verse 12, we'll see the truth of Christ's word and we'll consider it in mercy and in judgment. The truth of Christ's word in mercy and in judgment. And then in verses 13 through 16, we'll see the danger of falsehood in Christ's church from without and within. And then in uh, verse 17, to close the sermon, the reward of steadfast faith in Christ. That promise, that sweet promise that Christ puts before the saints who persevere and overcome the danger. So first, looking at the truth of Christ's word in mercy and in judgment, look at verse 12 with me. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Remember, in each of these letters... Christ opens by describing himself. And he gives a description drawn from Revelation chapter 1. And in each letter, the description of himself ties directly into what he's going to say, both about the church and about what's coming to the church. And so where does this sharp two-edged sword come from? Well, Revelation 1.16 tells us exactly where it comes from. Look at it with me. Just Flip the page back one. Revelation 1, verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. So if you want to know where that sword came from, it came out of his mouth. And he's holding it in his hands, wielding it with power. That's the image it's 
given to us. And this connection between the sword and the mouth is not unique to Revelation. If we look at First Isaiah 49, verse 2, I'll just read it to you. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me, and he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. The speaker there being the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this image is directly expressed to us in Isaiah 49, but then in the New Testament, it's used in a couple of different connections. In Ephesians chapter 6, in the passage dealing with the full armor of God, in chapter 6, verse 17, we say, uh, Paul tells the saints in Ephesus to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And where do words come from? From the mouth. So you see the connection there that Paul's drawing. And then later on, the author of Hebrews, and I, just to get this on the record, I think Paul authored Hebrews, but it is contested, so I'm not going to die on that hill. But the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What physical sword could do such a thing? Answer is none. There is no physical sword that could do that. But has anybody ever spoken a word to you that has convicted you, even down to the depths of your being, your heart? You see, the sword of God's word goes deeper than any physical sword could ever plunge. And then later on in Revelation, in chapter 19, verse 21, we hear the fate of all those who resist the conquering King of glory, who resist the living Lamb, the risen Lamb of God, and the rest, those who had allied with the beast and the false prophet in chapter 19, were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So again and again, sword and mouth wed together. This sword that Christ has is his word, his word. And what does this sharp two-edged sword accomplish? Well, God's word has two modes, doesn't it? Mode is a dangerous word in in theology. So I'm going to define how it is I'm using that. The sword has two modes. God's word has two modes. It comes to make known the mercy of God or to bring the judgment of God. Mercy or judgment, depending upon the occasion and the audience. Robert Murray McShane said that it is all mercy now, but that it shall be all judgment when Christ returns. What he means by that is, while you're yet living, if you have yet to receive Jesus Christ and to rest upon him alone for salvation, when his word comes to you, it's coming presenting an opportunity to hold out your hand by faith and to receive good things. That's what the word does. But after you die, the game is up. There are no second chances after that physical expiration where soul and body are divided one from another. And then comes the judgment. And if you have not closed with Christ by then, then my friends, the word comes as judgment, condemning you to hell. That was a point that McShane was drawing out, and I think it's relevant to this. But in what mode is God's word as a sword coming 
to the church in Pergamum. Well, I think the very fact that it's a sword tells us what's going on. In this passage, we might think, based on just verses 12 and 13, on the introduction and then the blessing and the, the, the approval of the church, that it's all mercy and the sword is coming to relieve them of what it is they're about to face or something like that, to fight against Satan because he's dwelling there. But the point of our text is actually revealed in verse 16 where the sword comes up again, that this word of God that's coming to the church in Pergamum is coming and shall come in judgment, a judgment against the church. You see, Christ is judge of all the world. And all the nations of the world will be judged by him. And in that respect, his wielding a sword of judgment against the world is a great comfort to us when we face off against falsehood around us. But what about when we face off against falsehood within or among us, either in our own hearts or in the fellowship of the saints? If the church is found out to be dealing in false doctrine, Christ will surely judge his own people. 1 Peter 4, 17, doesn't, it put this, doesn't Peter put this very clearly for us by the Holy Spirit? For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And he's admonishing the church uh, the dispersed church in Asia Minor there, so maybe perhaps some of the same hearers or receivers of the letter in Revelation chapter 2, to maintain faithfulness, to maintain holiness before God, to not be drawn away by the seductive uh, temptations of the world. Are not our trials, in fact, many of our trials, I don't want to say all of them because I'm not God, but are not many of our trials temporal judgments or chastisements or merely occasions to scour away the filth of falsehood in our hearts in preparation for Christ's return. Christ is refining us when he brings his word in these times of judgment. And this is precisely the relation put forward in our text today. We see, we've considered the truth of Christ's word in mercy and in judgment. We've seen how it's being used even now in our context so we can move forward into the danger of falsehood in Christ's church. Um, having established that Christ comes with a sharp two-edged sword to judge falsehood, now we can get a picture of the danger of that falsehood, just to put it clearly. From outside the church, falsehood in the world brings persecution and violent opposition. In fact, these very things that the saints in Pergamum had already experienced that Smyrna was going to experience. Look at verse 13 with me. This is what Christ says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Christ never forgets or forsakes his faithful ones. When they are persecuted from without, he remembers them. He remembers their name. This fellow Antipas, we know nothing else about him. He's mentioned nowhere else in Scripture. There are no other details. And yet, for 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years, the church has recognized this faithful martyr 
They have recognized that Christ Jesus has stored up his name in the book of life. And there's no removing Antipas' name from either before Christ or before the people of God. Christ never forgets or forsakes his faithful ones. He knows you. He knows your situation. Do you live in an ungodly city? Do you live in an ungodly neighborhood? Do you have neighbors who flaunt their sin on their doorsteps and even put it before your children? Do you live and grow up in an ungodly family? To use that image I used earlier, again drawn from McShane, as a lily among thorns. Do you have unbelieving family members by the dozens and believing family members by the O in the mirror? (laughs) And that's it? Jesus knows where you dwell. He knows exactly what situation you're in. Doesn't this bring comfort to you? I know a man, he said that, uh, he professed Christ, and he said that he, his, uh, his language was so sinful because the men in his workplace used it all day long, all day, every day, and maybe a couple of you guys understand that. I, I understand that. I had a, an employment situation like that right out of college, and it is really tempting to fall into that. This should encourage you. Satan, or, Satan may dwell there, but Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. He knows exactly where you are, and he will bring aid to you in time of need. There's no temptation that has come upon you that is uncommon or particularly unique. And in fact, there is always a way of escape in those situations. We can rejoice in our Savior in this. But then falsehood and the danger of it, it's not just without the church. It's not just on the outside. It's not just out there somewhere. Let's build up the walls. But the danger actually bubbles up within the church. I don't want to cast suspicion on anybody here. That's not my purpose. My purpose is to preach the text this evening. But look at what Christ says in verse 14. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What is he getting at here? Well, I want to make a couple of points. First, falsehood within the church and within our hearts is much more pernicious, much more dangerous, much more deadly than falsehood that comes against us from without, precisely because it's more subtle because it's mixed with the truth, because it sets before us something enticing that makes us think, yeah, we can have Jesus and that. What's keeping us from that, whatever that is? In this case, involvement in the pagan culture and society, engaging in idolatrous feasts and everything that attended them and whatever. And the reason why I say that with confidence is because Christ here characterizes this inner danger, this insider danger In terms drawn from the Old Testament, referencing Balaam, Balak, and then uh, a New Testament term, the Nicolaitans. What was Balaam's sin in Numbers? Peddling the prophetic office for money. Counseling a pagan king, Balak, to compromise the faithfulness of the Israelites by seducing them into spiritual and even literal adultery idolatry and perhaps even idolatrous and immoral feasts were proliferating, spreading among the Christians in Pergamum. And so Christ comes to them 
And many of them being Jewish would know exactly what he's talking about. He says, you are falling for Balaam's lies. You are capitulating under Balak's assaults. You are consorting with the Nicolaitans. He rebukes them. Oh, how the faithful are falling. Just a couple verses earlier, we read about Antipas. This was a church that produced a martyr. This was a church that was filled with faith, marked by faithfulness, that withstood persecution and held fast to the gospel. And now, after all that, everything they've been through, they're falling down before pagan gods, compromising with the world around them. To put it into martial terms, consorting, not just with Nicolaitans, but consorting with the enemy. Who is leading the charge in the evangelical church today for doctrinal compromise in the face of social pressures? Think about it. I'll name it because this is very public. In the National Cathedral, which is an Episcopalian property, Max Lucado, a very popular evangelical author, gave a message, had nothing to do with homosexuality or anything like that. It's a basic gospel presentation. As far as I know, there was no compromise inherent in what he said there. But then... As soon as he was done and it got publicized, because it's the National Cathedral, left-wing progressive movements criticized allowing him space to share the truth of the gospel because he had said homosexuality was a sin in the past. You know what Max Lucado's response to that was? It was, people of good faith can differ on this. Ah, how the faithful are falling. I'm not condemning Max Lucado out of the church. That's not my place. But long before someone as mainstream as Max Lucado gets to that point, there are people in the church pushing the envelope on these issues, pushing for doctrinal compromise, first for the sake of evangelistic witness, and then for the sake of being able to maintain a foothold in the public square. And where does it end, brothers and sisters? Hint, it doesn't end. It ends actually in verse 16. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Who is them? Those who have imported falsehood into the church. Let us guard our own hearts. You know, we're susceptible to this too. Might not be with anything as sensationalistic as homosexuality. Perhaps it's worldly thinking. Perhaps it's critical theories. Or perhaps it's Marxism. If you're talking about political things, perhaps it's just not wanting to offend, of holding back, of going and doing that thing that your friends want you to do that you know is wrong. Or perhaps not warning them of the danger they're putting themselves in. Whatever the case may be. But what is the pressure that these celebrity teachers have in the evangelical world? The pressure really comes down to this. Same pressure Balaam had. Money, wealth, and a career. That's what it is. And these are the pressures that are going to come against you men who are preparing for gospel ministry. Pressures that are going to come upon public school teachers, even upon factory workers. Whatever it is the Lord has called you to do, trust me, the enemy is going to try to infiltrate it and put pressure upon you to compromise, and you must not compromise. I say this as one who has failed in this regard 
in my own workplaces in the past. And when you do fail, you repent. Remember, as McShane said, right now his word is all mercy, but then it shall be judgment. So you have the opportunity to repent even now, to confess your sin and to seek God's forgiveness, and he's faithful to give it to you. Moving on, the danger introduced by falsehood is itself destructive, but the ultimate danger to your souls and to mine is what is contained in verse 16, the threat of judgment from the hand of Christ himself. Against whom is Christ waging war? I've already said it. Those in the church who have compromised. Whom does Christ oppose? Those in the church who have compromised the truth. All those who cheapen the truth, compromise the gospel, or pervert the church's witness in the face of social pressure. And we ought to connect this back to Balaam directly. Consider what happens to Balaam. Not only does he give Balak, or Balak this, uh, this counsel and successfully corrupts the Israelites, even as they make their way to the promised land. But later on in Balaam's life, he falls by the sword. In Numbers chapter 31, verse 8, we read uh, at the end of a battle, this is what we read here, 31.8, they killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of their slain, Evi and Rechem and Zur and Hur and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. And so for Balaam, unique among this catalog of slain, we have an indication of how it was he was slain, with the sword. And interestingly enough, when Balaam was on his way to Balak, we read in Numbers chapter 22, verse 31, then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. And so this theme of the sword coming to oppose and even to vanquish Balaam comes up again and again. And then we have the connection of the sword and Balaam and those who consort with him in Revelation chapter 2. But Balaam was outside the church, you may say. It's true, he might have been a prophet, but he wasn't an Israelite. The danger to us is not so great. Well, not so fast, brothers and sisters. The Israelites' failure to reject the idolatry introduced into the camp by Balaam's scheme resulted in 24,000 slain by plague in Numbers 25, verse 9, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 7 to 11, gives that incident as an example of judgment on Israel and warning the church against the idolatry of worldliness. And he says, I give this to you, or this was given to us, as an example and so this passage, this letter to Pergamum to us with these details from the Old Testament, which may not be all that familiar to us, is rich in all of these connections across Scripture for our instruction and our good because Christ who sees all things, knows our hearts, knows what danger we are in. We've considered first the truth of Christ's word and mercy and in judgment denominated by the sword. And then we looked at the danger of falsehood in Christ's church. Now we can move forward to verse 17, the reward of steadfast faith in Christ. There is so much hope in a passage, in a letter with so much danger put before you. There is so much hope in the gospel. First, there are encouragements in verse 13. 
And then there's the very fact that Christ brings direction paired with a warning in verse 16. There's hope yet. You may repent. But then there are promises, glorious promises in verse 17. Look at it with me. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. You have three promises here. Manna, a white stone, and a new name. We're going to go through all three in turn. First, the Israelites in the wilderness were fed on manna. So again, we have this connection to that experience in the life of God's old covenant church. And this manna was falling from heaven. But you and I are promised to receive what Jesus calls here hidden manna. Hidden manna. What does this signify to us? Well, I would say nothing less than the Lord Jesus Christ himself and fellowship with him. Though the faithless indulge in the worldly wealth and acceptance with those who despise the God of the Bible, and this frequently look like having feasts with them dedicated to pagan gods in which all manner of immorality was being experienced, yet he who overcomes will partake of the hidden bread of life himself. What does Jesus call himself in John chapter 6? In John chapter 6, at verse 35... Jesus says this. Uh, he says, oh, sorry, I was Luke. In John chapter 6, at verse 35, not Luke chapter 6, we have this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And then in verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So this is the dichotomy. This is, this is the, um, these are the options. Believe in Christ and receive the bread of life. Never hunger or thirst again. Or reject him and do not believe. and Starve spiritually. That's what Christ puts before his disciples in chapter 6 of John, that's what he puts before us in Revelation chapter 2. But there's something else that I think is even a bit more immediate in our context. In Revelation chapter 19 at verse 9, we have described for us the eternal condition of those who overcome in Revelation chapter 2. In 19, verse 9, you have described what's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. And this is what it says. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. This marriage supper of the Lamb has so much wrapped up into it. But I would say that the central idea for our purposes tonight is the idea of fellowship of intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, with the triune God through Jesus Christ's Son, that we are seated at his table. You see, the temptation with worldliness and acceptance with the world is you want to be seated at the cool kids' table. You want to sit with the cool kids in the cafeteria. You want to get access to everything the world has to offer. Acceptance with man, uh, relationships, money, wealth, whatever have you, promotions. But what Christ says is, 
aren't I worth so much more than all that? Isn't that all just garbage? Isn't communion with God for eternity worth much more than all that? This promise on its own would be enough for motivation, wouldn't it? To know that you, too, will partake of the hidden manna if you overcome. But yet he gives two more parts to the believer's inheritance, a stone and a name. What is the significance of the white stone? In ancient Greek culture, a white stone was given to a victor at the end of a race, and supposedly on this white stone would be written a name for that winner that only he would ever see, that ever, only he would know, and I guess whoever wrote the, the name on the stone in the first place. However, the context here has nothing to do with ancient Greece, does it? has everything to do with ancient Israel. It's everything to do with Balaam and Balak and all, all of these references and manna and the experience of the Israelites in the wilderness. So what I think is going on is more of a Hebrew reference. Manna was described in, uh, in the Exodus and in Numbers as white like bdellium, like a stone. A white stone also in Jewish custom outside of uh, biblical literature, but in extra biblical Jewish custom, a white stone signified acquittal when you're being charged with a crime, and so if you're guilty, they give you a black stone, but if you're acquitted, you said innocent, they give you a white stone, but it also could be used as like a ticket to get into special events and special occasions, like a token of entry that would be given to you by whoever's hosting the party, and then you can get in with this white stone. In light of Revelation's emphasis on white robes of righteousness, which are our token of acquittal and acceptance with God, I find this connection to be a bit more compelling. But the name then, what is the name? Well, we're told in our text that it's a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. And I think what this is, is not necessarily like a unique individual name for each of us, though that's referenced elsewhere in Scripture, that there is a name for every believer that God only knows. But I believe that we're to understand this new name here as the name of the Lord himself, which is known only to those who have received him, who believe him, who rest upon him by faith. That's what the name is here. Look at Revelation 3, verse 12, which I think is the expansion of this idea. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. To know his name friends, is a special privilege, and it's conferred upon the faithful overcomer who enters into a close fellowship with God. He who can then say with Abraham, I am a friend of God, servant, friend, brother, bride, son, daughter. These are the manifold relations which we will sustain with God for all eternity, and what glorious, blissful thought is this? that we will know him in fuller, closer measure than we have known anybody else ever. Your brothers and your sisters, you will know God more closely than you do them. Your husband or your wife, you will know God more closely than you know your husband or your wife. Coworkers, children, parents, pastors, whatever, 
you will be in closer fellowship and communion with God than with anyone else. When we're young, balance beams are fun, aren't they? But when we get a little bit older, they're not so fun anymore. (laughs) But as Christians, we are not called to walk on a balance beam. We are called to walk on the living God's path of righteousness, which, though narrow, is firm and secure. And as a church, you cannot afford to stumble across a balance beam. You can't afford to walk on a swinging tightrope or stand on a precipice or live on the brink of apostasy. The dangers of falsehood are just too great. But by the truth of his word, Christ opposes falsehood and rewards those who hold fast to him through faith. And we've seen that the truth of Christ's word is expressed in mercy and in judgment. We've seen the danger of falsehood in Christ's church. We've unpacked that quite a bit. But then also the blessed reward of steadfast faith in Christ. And as Christians, I would remind you of this. You are called to be Bible people. You are called to be people of the word, filled with the spirit, committed to the truth of God. And the principal danger that you will face in your life, either as you grow up or as you grow old, is proud disbelief in your own heart giving birth to falsehood suggested from without or innovated from within. Wanton rejection of God's truth is what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve And it is spiritual friendship with Satan who seeks to consume and devour God's image bearers, to mar those on signs of God's kingdom, which he, the Lord himself, has cast to the four corners of the earth. The outcome of such friendship is described in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20 and 21. I read one of those verses, but I'll read both again. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is not the fate of Satan that's being described. This is the fate of those who have made spiritual friendship with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the stakes. That is how serious this is. But Christ has furnished you, brothers and sisters, with everything you need to overcome the schemes of the deceiver. Christ has furnished you with his word, judgment against the lies of the evil one, and mercy for the humble believer. He's furnished you with mercy. Do you trust it? More to the point, do you trust him who gives it? Do you believe him and believe in him? This is the great challenge of faith. But consider the rewards in verse 17. Everlasting life with Christ. Christian identity, his name inscribed upon you and your name inscribed upon his book. Eternity. Eternity in his joy and delight. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com.